Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 560, February 10th, 2024. Welcome back. And today we have Kelly Jackson. I believe she's been here before, hasn't she, Stephen? Like a dog died, you go. It was a long time ago. The Cane River Film Festival, which we started, we talked to her about before, but now she is a, 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 biogra- or a documentary on the Matoyer family, and especially, uh, uh, let's see, The Life and Times of Marie Therese Coincoin, who was uh, kind of the, the one of the founders of the, um, the uh, McCoyer family, and um, so yeah, it, it's uh, set there in Natchitoches and shows the uh, the history of the family and of the Creole community, Creoles of color. That's 18th century too, so we need to fix that. We're right. When, what's that? That where it says 17th century Natchitoches, so we need. Oh to yes, you are correct. Right. <laughs> Thank and you. She is, of course, a descendant. You know, she's a, a seventh great granddaughter of Marie Therese and, and Claire right, yeah. So she's well, and lineage, you know. She kind of stumbled across this accidentally when she started, you know, like you're doing with your own uh, family research. Yeah, yeah with these. Saw, yeah. There were all these Matoyers down in Louisiana, and it, it wasn't, a, you know, this kind of rare name wasn't rare at all here. So uh, that started her, you know, that started her on her. Uh, Owner path. So I look forward to chatting with her in a minute. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history on February 10th, 1763, the Treaty of Paris gives the Louisiana colony to Spain. And of course, this is what will launch then the, you know, the the innovations by the Spanish. You know, the the yeah. uh, bureaucracy. Uh, it will give give later give uh, give us the French Quarter. You know, the architecture of the French Quarter. And I'm I think this is truncated because, you know, the, the western half, you know, from the Mississippi west went to Spain, uh, from the Mississippi east went to uh, England. And so, yeah, right. uh, that, but uh, subsumed with the American Revolution as uh, part of the breakaway colonies. So, yeah, very important to uh, all of the history since then. Well, now for uh, this week in Louisiana, New Orleans history, Mayor Isaac W. Patton was born in Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, Virginia, February 4th, 1828. He uh, started planting cotton on property purchased in Madison Parish, looked after a sugar cane plantation below New Orleans that belonged to his father-in-law and just kind of worked his way up in the uh, civic structure as well until he became um, um, mayor of New Orleans. Well, now for this week in Louisiana. Okay, so this week we highlight the Crew of Isis Parade on Saturday, February the 10th at 6 p.m. in Kenner. The Crew of Isis begins at Esplanade Mall on West Esplanade in Kenner. The all-female Crew of Isis first started parading in Kenner in 1973. Comprised of 200-plus riders and 20 floats, this Egyptian-themed crew is known for its marching bands, dance teams, and gloriously attired maids as well as for its specialty throws, including decorated bras in support of breast cancer charities. Have you ever been to this one? No, I have not. I have to go there and 
catch a bra, bra. You know, because <laughs> everybody says, can a bra. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, y'all have fun. Let us know uh, how it went. Is now, there this, a website for this? Uh, probably. I think there's a link, yeah. Um, now, this week's postcard from Louisiana. Uh, I listened to Boardwalker and the Three Finger Swingers sing at Bamboola's in New Orleans. Okay. Hey, 
uh, with the Louisiana Studies Conference down at, at normally at, at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. So we had to do that via video conference. We could not go in person. Oh, wow. Yeah, My favorite part of the conference is going to Natchitoches. <laughs> I missed it out two years in a row. So uh, we were glad to get back this year. So anyway, let's get on to your current project, mm-hmm. which is a documentary about the Matoyer family. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it and what the name is and where people will be able to see it and that kind of stuff. Well, thank you. It's Resurrection Fern, The Life and Times of Marie Therese Concon, which is my ancestor. And she was a free woman of color. At first she was enslaved, you know, in the household of St. Denis, who was the commandant and founder of Natchitoches. And her parents were enslaved in that household as well. So later on in her life, she um, had a liaison with a Frenchman, came from La Rochelle, France, named Claude Thomas Pierre Matoyer, and some pronounce it Matoyer. There's different pronunciations, but most people call it Matoyer. And they had 10 children. These children, most of them became free people of color, what we call James Day Color Libre, free people of color, and they were able to build the St. Augustine Catholic Church and the Melrose Plantation, which still stands to this day. So as a descendant, um, I was in Los Angeles, and I came across this story back in 2010, and I was just so fascinated and overwhelmed by this woman empowerment story that I decided to um, come to Louisiana not knowing anyone. (laughs) And uh, Betty Matoire, who's Betty Matoire Rock, she works at the Melrose Plantation, and I called there, and I told her my story, like, I really want to make a film about this, and who do I talk with? And she says, well, you know, I happen to be a Matoire. I said, well, cousin, let's do it. We've been working together ever since, and she's actually in this documentary. And I'm just so proud I was able to show it during my um, sixth annual Cane River Film Festival. I partnered with Acadiana Cinemas, which is our Parkway Cinema 6. So we're on the big screen now, two years in a row. And I was able to show my own documentary on the big screen. It was just a a major moment for me and all that were involved. Um, Unfortunately, three people passed away since since I filmed the documentary. But their family came in strong to see their, their grandma, their mom, their husband, their father. And it was just a beautiful moment for all of us. Well, and do you think someday it may be on, like, uh, LPB, Louisiana Public Broadcasting or something? Well, I hope so. I've contacted um, the director, so they have it now. So it's just a matter of when they're going to view it and, and put it into their system. I'm hoping that that's going to be something that they're definitely going to um, air. Um, I did this also with the lieutenant governor's office, Billy Nunsinger. It's on a grant, um, a reimbursable grant, but with Louisiana Cultural Development and lieutenant governor's office of Louisiana Tourism, Billy Nunsinger. So we're all three co-executive producers of this project. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some pretty good stuff going on from the state to um, fund stuff like this so that we get our up there, because it's important. People, you know, kind of have heard about the Matoyers. A lot of people have, but don't know the full story. And I'm, uh, I'm just uh, really looking forward to learning more uh, about. Well, I would point out too to the listeners that the Lieutenant Governor of Louisiana has a lot of power, uh, apart from being the first in line of succession after the governor. But one, one of the things that the Lieutenant Governor 
heads in this state is the Office of Culture, Recreation, and Tourism. Mm-hmm. And that's a multi-billion, literally a multi-billion dollar industry in this state. So they give out grants. They run the state museums. They host or, or participate in or, or sponsor all kinds of festivals all across uh, the state, from the Arkansas line down to the Gulf Coast. So it's, it's a big deal. It's a big yes. deal in the state, a very big he's, deal. He's a wonderful person. Shout out to Billy Dunsinger and Running Again, but he's been my sponsor for the Cane River Film Festival as well. And the first two that I had, he showed up, and I was just, just in awe to meet him, and he was just so nice that he would come to the festival and not just be a person that, you know, sends a donation, but he actually came twice and, you know, was very supportive of what I do. He knows me personally, and I just really am grateful to him for all that he's done for me via the documentary and the film and the Cane River Film Festival. So hats off to him for that. Yeah, and um <clears throat> it's uh it's an important topic. Um in the United States proper <laughs> you know, as distinct from uh, Louisiana, the, the Americans, um America um they their goal was kind of this uh before the Civil War, only minor, uh, just in a minor ways after, was a, a two-tier system of free white people and enslaved black people. And then after, they would be, you know, first uh, after the Civil War rather than technically slaves because they couldn't do that anymore. But Louisiana had a third um, third group, the free people of color who um, you know, as in your case, the case of uh, your ancestor, um, uh, uh, the French guys would get over here, and Spanish too, for that matter, mm-hmm. send all that many women. They didn't send families like the uh, English did. And so uh, right. marry people they found locally, either uh, 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 people, you know, the, the Africans or the local uh, Native Americans. And so they wound up with... Um, children a lot of times who were free, well-educated, and had money. Absolutely. Yeah, they became <clears throat> like the Matoyers built that church, and I've heard it's the only church in the country where the people of color were sitting up front and the white people were behind them because the people of color had paid for it. <laughs> right, and, and it's still standing to this day, and it is known as um, one of the Catholic church churches built by a free people of color throughout the United States. I think it's one of the only ones. So it's a very historic place. It has its own historic marker from Louisiana. And um, Grandpere, which is Nicholas Augustine, her firstborn, which was a twin, um, his crypt is behind in the cemetery of the church, and he has a historic marker. This is a historic family. Um, because of their wealth, you know, because coming from being enslaved and to freedom, they were able to come into wealth by, you know, being farmers, you know, doing different types of crops, bear hides and oil, shipping and importing and exporting from um, Natchitoches to New Orleans all the way to France, which was very instrumental, you know, with the indigo, with the dye and the oil um, for machinery and all kinds of things that they used it for. But they were an instrumental family in building they were some of the first settlers here, you know, past St. Denis and some of the people that came here absolutely first. But so they're, they're there in their own right, 
very historic family. Matwire, he had two different women in his lives. One was Marie-Therese Conquan, the other one was Marie-Therese Berard. And the Berard line of the family, they have the Oakland Plantation, so they have their own um, established name as well. So it's a very important um, family dynasty. <laughs> right. <laughs> have you ever he heard what the total number of descendants uh, is for that that family any any idea? Well, people I, say more than ten thousand for sure. You know, yeah, because there, there's a family everywhere. Of, that, that's like that. But I think the number of descendants is like fifteen or twenty thousand. It's just unreal. Yeah, easily because I know um, Chicago, Texas, California, here in Louisiana, of course, um, they're mm. all over the place. What I just said, someone talking about the Matuires migrated all the way into uh, Mexico. So I wanted to learn more about who went on over there. But I decided to, as, as I came here and learned about my family history only in 2010, I was just mesmerized by the entire story that I, you know, left everybody and everything in California came out here. Right. I only had contact with Betty, but she introduced me to just so many people and showed me around the lay of the land, and I started taking photographs and videos that I kept coming back getting more into the genealogy research library at um, um, not only the Cammie Henry Library, but we have our own genealogy library and the old courthouse. So I, I was a volunteer there for many years searching the archives wow. for not my own story. I didn't want to come here to tell what somebody else wrote in their own book or whatever they decided to do. I wanted to start my, what my project was from scratch. I still took from their sources and learned, but I wanted to just, as a filmmaker, you want to know where the people came from, you know, what were their huts like, what is, how were their living conditions, how did they dress, you know, you want to know all of those type of things. So I had to go um, and learn all of these things on my own, and I'm just really proud that this year, after so many years of research and development, I was able to bring a lot of my pieces together, but I work with a lot of the people in our community, like Elvin Shields is a major his, um, historian and preservation. It's with the Oakland Plantation and Magnolia Plantation. We have Betty Matwire Rock. We have David Stamey, our clerk of court. We have um, Justin French from the Fort St. John Baptiste. Um, Mary Lynn, she passed away. She was the director of the Cammie Henry Research Center at right, NSU. Right. Yeah, and yeah. Ma Bell passed away, but, she, you know, T. Frey Monet, he was one of the last ones that spoke the French Creole. So it's like a combination, people from the Melrose Plantation and descendants. So I put historians and descendants together and said, what do you remember? What do you recall? And that's what it's about. It's a conversation. And we all had something to say, and their voices are valid. They may be different than what people have heard all along these years. And that's why I did it because I'll be sitting by the campfire at the kitchen table, and it's like, hey, I didn't hear that before. And I was like, Ma Bell, will you say that for me on tape, <laughs> you know? And I'm glad that she did, because it opens up different dialogue and to realize that other people hold different um, memories of what their grandma, her grandmother, Nicholas Augustine was her grandfather. So she recalls right. what her grandmother said about Nicholas Augustine, and that's really important. And now she's gone, so... This is that memorial to her for her right. descendants to remember her in. Yeah, well, we, it's a we, part of history. I mean, 
I'm not mm-hmm. saying that just as a scholar, but this is a part of history that it behooves us to try to record. Because when these people are gone, their stories are gone, their traditions are gone, their their memories, all that's gone. Absolutely. And that's Unless why I moved here, because I knew I had to record it. And I started my foundation in 2012, the Resurrection Firm Foundation Incorporated, <laughs> for historic preservation of my Creole culture. And, um, you know, I've just been very proud of starting something grassroots and to see that now I was able to turn um, – I put it into the archives now with the clerk of court. It's at the Cammie Henry Research Center in their archives and at the Creole Heritage Center at NSU. So I'm really proud that it's officially a part of the archives now. Right. I was going to mention as an old seminary student, um, the name St. Augustine. You notice that a pretty good bit in Louisiana. And um, almost always it means that the Catholic institution, whether it's a church or a school or whatever, <clears throat> was uh, built by people of color because St. Augustine was a... Uh, a North African. Yeah. He was, he was an African, yes. Mm-hmm, he was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, North Africans more specifically, but yeah. One, one of the mm-hmm. most important theologians the church ever produced. I mean, people still read him because I had a class in St. Augustine. <laughs> oh. uh, so, a very important guy, and he's from Africa. So you wind up seeing that, and that sometimes is a clue, especially around here, that um, people of color started it, and that they're okay. We're from Africa, yeah. And I, you know, there's a statue in the mill at the Melrose Plantation. They have um, in the Yucca House. They actually had built a side little little chapel, you know, there, and they have a nice size um, statue of him. St. Augustine in there. So been able to photograph that and incorporate it in some of my, um, you know, in my work. But I'm moving on to a new new project, and I'm just really excited about continuing to promote Resurrection Fern. And it's just, you know, it's all going to be a part of historic preservation. Yeah. Why don't you tell so us tell, about tell, your new tell project? Me, and tell, tell us real quickly, where is the... the um, that that church and that community is it is that Albervale or is that someplace else? Well, they do call that area Albervale. Um, it's right close, you know. The St. Augustine Catholic Church and the Melrose Plantation are just basically around the corner from one another. The river is the one that separates them. So the Yucca House is one of the early um, <clears throat> homes that was built on that on the Matoire land, and it, it might have even been the first home and. Uh, you know, they have Francis Mignon, I think that's his name, the writer. He stayed there, you know, when Cammie Henry took it over and made it an artist colony. But for that particular house, they have a little side chapel attached to it. And I guess that's where they worship until they built their church, which is St. Augustine Catholic Church. So it's a really historic area, the whole the whole region. Oh, the whole entire area, I mean. It's, you know, a lot of times people don't realize that there weren't that many people here in the beginning, you know. They kind of forget about it because it's so overpopulated today. And, you know, you have all these new businesses and street signs and lights and all that. But it was just pretty much dark, you know, with the Native Mm -hmm. Americans and the people coming from France and you had the the Spaniards and you you had the imported Africans, you know, that were enslaved. So this whole combination of people... Out of that became the Creole people, the Creole culture, 
um, which at the time, you know, it has different meanings, I think, in different eras to me. When the Portuguese first started titling them Creole, which they wanted to differentiate the people that they had just bought from, like, Haiti, you know, Africa, or wherever that just came in from France, they're like, okay, this this first generation born to the new world, new France, because this was France, these people are now called Creole, and we can write them in our census. The ones before them, they're like, okay, this one came from Ghana, this one came from such and such, you know, and so they were able to see as the people grew in population which ones were first and this one is of the new world. And so that was the differentiation of that is what I've learned. Yeah, and we have a friend named uh, Robert Caldwell who's uh, from the Native American group around there. In addition to the, the folks you were just talking about, there were also and Apache who came from the east and the west and met up there and uh, kind of merged. And, uh, you know, very important still, it, like Zwali, you know, you've heard mm-hmm. of Zwali, Tamale. Yeah, Las Adeas. Yeah, and the... Uh, the um, the Spanish and the French were kind of eyeballing each other in Natchitoches. What was that Spanish place nearby, Stephen? It was Los Adias. Yeah, Los Adias. Mm-hmm. It yeah. would have been. It it was founded. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was founded around the 1740s or 1750s. It would have been among the older cities in the definitely. country. Definitely. Or I'm sorry, the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, definitely. But it, but it died eventually. It was where Spanish claims met up with French claims, and so each side wanted a outpost there. And like you say, it was very sparsely settled. Most of the people they were sending were soldiers, and then like fam- you know, as they made families and set up shop, they they uh, started those um, uh, plantations you're starting up talking about. But yeah, they they were kind of on their own out there and had oh, a lot of intermixing. <laughs> Yeah, they were on their own. I mean, they they would send information to, you know, Canada and France that they had to, you know, go back to their um their the the head people, you know, and whatever was going on over here, they had to report back. So that was the process of that, but you know, nobody was over here to watch over them, so they made their own laws and even between those two areas where we're talking about Las Adeas and Natchitoches, you know, they had the no man's land where, you know, they they didn't want to, this is the line, you know, that goes across into our area and your area. Well, in between that line, they call no man's land, which had no rules, no laws. So it was like pretty much like the wild, wild west for real scary, you know, because anybody could get, you know, robbed going through there and there was no repercussion yeah, on there were, that. <laughs> were literal, well, there were literal smugglers, you know. Yeah, it was crazy. River. Yeah, the Sabine River is right there to the west of you before Toledo Bend came along. Mm-hmm. And so you've got smugglers, you've got literal pirates. There were river pirates operating. Everything. Uh, there were enslavers. There were crooks, literal crooks Woo. and swindlers. Well, yeah, it was, it was a very yeah. I couldn't imagine. And <laughs> I there, probably would have stayed on my side. I don't think I would have went through the no man's land. <laughs> there were also people of color that would go there because they couldn't be dragged back into slavery. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, like the Maroons, Maroons, like yes. in New Orleans. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They were very yeah, intelligent right. because they would go off into the, you know, the marshes and stuff, and they put, like, sticks and things along the way. So if anybody was coming behind them, you know, they could hear you, like, a good good ways away. They could get out of there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. 
But there was a lot of mixed races. You know, the Native and the, the Africans, they went on together um, to, to, you know, self-preservation to protect one another. So it was really important. But as time went on, you know, the Americans really convinced the Native Americans to start enslaving the Africans as well. And that really broke the chain. And, um, you know, it would be probably a different America today if that chain had never been broken, you know, yeah, between, right? those, between those alliances. Yeah. Yeah, because you had those, you know, you had Europeans, you had Africans, you had Native Americans, and and uh, multiple groups of each, right? <laughs> right. So uh, they were having to go out there, and here you are on this way out here uh, spot, and you just kind of have to make it with each other trading because uh, mm -hmm. how long would it take to get something from France to uh, Natchitoches? Something exactly. from Spain to Los uh, just So they traded behind the backs of their own, you know, superiors in order to survive. You know, like, you guys have grain, we have corn, we have this, we have that, yeah, we yeah. have guns. Mm -hmm. And they just went behind mm -hmm. the backs and went ahead and, because they were forbidden to really trade with one another, but they did it anyway. Because yeah, there's nobody here. Hard. They had to survive. Well, and That's the all there was. <laughs> the authorities looked the other way. I mean, they were so far back, you know, the French authorities back in France. Uh, the Span in, the, in the colonial era, at least, the, the Spanish authorities, I guess, are down in Cuba. So they're more or less too far away, really, to do anything. Yeah, you couldn't regulate that. There's no, no way. No way. No, and, and when and the Spanish... There was a big trade, I know, up here, up here in North Louisiana, there was a big trade over around Washtenaw Parish in horses. Of all, you know, people needed them mm -hmm. for travel, for, tran for you know, uh, transportation of goods, et cetera. And so there was, we have a record from an early, early guest of the show, actually. He is a historian at the Washtenaw Parish Library. He's a special collections uh, librarian over there and a local historian. And he was telling us an interesting bit of information that one of the earliest horse traders over there was a free man of color from Delaware, of all places. And somehow or another, he wound up in Monroe, or what became Monroe. It was then called the Washtenaw Post. This was after it was Fort Miro, but before it became Monroe. And this guy from Delaware lands down in, in Monroe trading horses for a living. Well, well like you had to go outside of your area to get rich, too, or, yeah. you know, well, better off. Because I, I remember there was a story I learned his name is Dietic Coin or something like that um, over in Las Vegas. And to me, he had one of the first layaways because he's like, you give me some money and I'm going to go out and get you horses or, you know, hides or whatever. And then he'd come back and bring it back. He'd keep a little money for himself. And and he was got so wealthy at doing this that he let his wife be on the horse. And at the time, like women weren't supposed to be on the horse or something of that nature. And he, he had his wife on, on his horse. So I just thought that was just so clever of him to realize that he, it wasn't really about culture or, or, or color or anything like that. It was about survival, survival of the fittest and making money in order to, for you to continue to grow and develop. So some and people took advantage of that. You had to take, sure enough, sure enough. Yeah, the richest man in New Orleans who built, uh, you know, St. Louis Cathedral and the Presbyter and the uh, um, um, Cabildo, um, dude was, what, what's it, um, he's like the guy that you go to when you buy a car and you get the stamp, uh, notary, he was the notary, and he must have just extracted a ton of 
<laughs> bribes from people because just being the notary became the richest guy in town. And, you know, if you got mm. the, you know, if you know where the money's flowing, you can uh, put yourself by it and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, rack up, you know, collect a bunch of it. Um, so yeah, the, the McToyers, um, uh, tell us a little bit more about their early history and, you know, who, um, uh, how they, um, how they, how they went through the, I, I knew you were just doing that. Tell us a little more about how they, you know, got money and got so well off that, uh, they were able to build their own, uh, uh, plantations and churches and stuff. Right. Well, a lot of the times, you know, well, it was France at first, and then it went to the Spaniards, and then it was back to France, and then the Americans came in, you know, after all this trading around. But, you know, the Spanish, they had land grants, and so a lot of my right. family members were able to um, get those land grants. That meant they had to go into that particular, like, I don't remember if it was five acres or amount the acres it was again, but this land was granted to them, and they had to clear it. They had to build their own bridge if it needed a bridge. They had to build a road if it needed that. They had to take, you know, clear out the trees. So that's how a lot of the areas got cleared because of those those grants. So my right, family right. was able to, as dowry, they were able to pass down some of those lands um, to their children as they got married and and helped them establish it with land and cattle. And so a lot of my family had, you know, their own vacheres with their cattle ranch, and they had their own farms where they were doing, like I said, indigo, tobacco, which were difficult crops, but they were very useful. And um, Marie Therese was out there bear trapping, you know, for their hides and their oil. So they became very wealthy just by being owners of land, owners also of slaves. You know, a lot of the slaves that they had, many of them were family members that they bought out of slavery or they purchased them themselves until that they could pay for them to be emancipated. So, um, you know, that's some of the story of what happened with Marie Therese Concoin. She was a slave of St. Denis. After St. Denis passed away, she became a slave of his as an heir property now all the the children are being separated for the very oh, first yeah. time so she goes to his son at first her and her brother john baptiste and then for some reason she goes to um um his daughter mean which is mean de soto madame de soto which is de soto paris today it's named from that family in um Opelousas. so right. after they came back when she came to natchitoches you know she was able through that household that's where she met Claude Thomas Pierre Matoire. Him and his friend, Antoine Pavy, they came here from La Rochelle, France, to the New World, New France, in search of wealth and land. And so they obviously went to the commandant's daughter, who was, you know, really running the town at the time. And um, that's where he met her. And, and eventually he became to lease her out, and they started having children together, which definitely was against the Catholic Church, not only you know, um, black and white could not marry, but you couldn't marry your slaves, but you're not supposed to also have children with them. So it became a real big issue with the Catholic priest, um, Father Quintanilla. So Madame de Soto, she stepped in the middle of that situation and was like going to bat for that relationship and was going to go as far as to talk to the head of the Catholic Church about this, like, we'll get rid of you before we get rid of them. But this priest, this priest, you know, she's like, look who pays the bills. You know, you need to think about that again. 
But as um, as the father kept coming back to baptize, he got more enraged. And so he actually had Marie Therese used as an example to separate them. He said, I'm going to take your family away from you um, and, and put them to the church. Which they, If they went to the church, um, they would be slaves for life. They would never be able to have their freedom. And, because the um, church owned slaves at the time. Oh, yeah. Let's oh, yeah. To be clear. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things where I've been able to trace, like you said, the Cabildo. That's why I'm going to New Orleans at the end of the month. I've been able to oh. hopefully trace her father to the um, plantation that was owned by the Jesuit priest. And his name oh, was yeah. Father, Father Bourbois, who had a um, contract with the Company of the Indies, Company of the West, and Iberville and Bianville. And they had their slaves. It was a um, sugarcane plantation. It was destroyed by the, the Spaniards, and so a lot of the records and the cemetery, you know, that was destroyed. But I believe I found traces of Francois and possibly maybe Caesar as his brother. Um, they came together here and sold to the household of St. Denis by a Jesuit priest called Father Vitry. So that's where my lead is. It's tracing more about Father Vitry, but... When we talked right. about Lasadeus earlier, um, he 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 married a Lasadeus native and, and and a Spaniard or you know something of that nature, and it was a, it was against their parents' wishes, so they had to annul the thing. And the Catholic Church stepped in. They're like, we don't want him here anymore, and so they took him back to New Orleans. And so that overshadows all the other things that he did, and it didn't really give me a clear. It just says that he brought those two slaves here and sold them to St. Denis. And I believe that's Marie Therese's father. So, yes, the, right. nuns, the nuns and the priests own slaves. A lot of people have a problem when I say that, but it is the truth. <laughs> it is yeah, the absolute have, truth. <laughs> we, we were studying up on the uh, Ursuline nuns a while back, and I mm -hmm, asked us, mm -hmm. we had a, a guest several years ago who wrote a book about them, and so I emailed her and we had not known enough to ask the right question at the time. So now I ask, uh, did the Ursulines keep their slaves after, you know, the U.S. took over? Because they're kind of worried about losing their property and wrote a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He wrote them back and said, your property's safe. And I was just wondering how that aspect of it worked out. Said, oh, no, they kept them to the bitter end. Like it was, you know, they, when they finally passed that amendment, that's when they uh, stopped owning slaves. It was. Uh, not even during the uh, Union occupation. You know, they didn't want to mess with the nuns. So. Right. <laughs> and I was so surprised when I was contacting the Jesuit, because, you know, that area where the plantation was, it's in the Common Street, common, the business district, Common Street, um, where there's now the Jesuit High School. And yeah. so they're like, our records do not even go back that far, Kelly. But when you find out, could you please let us know? And I'm like, I've been able to find it, like, your father, Booba, had a contract, and I have all those clear information with the company right, of the West, right. Company of the Indies, and Iberville and Banneville. He went to St. Dominique, which is now Haiti today, and he brought back 16 slaves. I think nine of them died. So in, in, in written word, he was trying to get a discount for the ones that died. Can I get my money back? And they're like, absolutely right. not. No way, you know. But I believe in that first group, that may be that might be where he got Francois from. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, I've been able to trace one of the ships, you know, along the way that came was called the St. Anne ship. So I'm just trying to, like, trace where did Francois come from, 
and who is Marie Francois? So I'm just not only keeping it at the story of Marie Therese, but, you know, her parents were as vital as she was in their own right as well. And, you know, they passed away right after um, Mime Saint-Denis passed away, but they were vital in saving people's lives. But they caught that fever, and they both died on the same day. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, Marie. Was, um, it, was it at this point yellow fever? I know it came along later. Was, probably was. Probably was. Mm -hmm. And her mom was pregnant at the, at the time that, that, according to oral history, her mom was pregnant at the time, and Marie Therese was supposed to have, um, take the baby out of her stomach, you know, like cesarean section right, style. Right, right, right. So that baby didn't continue to live long, but it did live for some, some days, from, um, from my, my, my knowledge. So, but that was pretty intense, I think, <laughs> you know, to have something like that happen, and you're still a teenager. Uh, so that's at that point. Meme, Meme Saint Denis has passed away because she died like three days prior to them, and then they died together. And now the, the the heirs, you know, are coming for the property of their parents. Right, right, right. What um, are, are you are you working with a genealogist at all to find any of this information? Are you doing it flying solo with everything? I mean, how, how are you doing this? I'm pretty much a solo person, but I've been collecting data and information and documents since 2010, since I came here. So I have a lot of, you know, I copied everything. And my genealogist in the library were like, you don't have to copy everything. I'm like, yes, I do. I need this at my house. You know, I need my own references. But I do work with, like, I just left the Cammie Henry Library just when I turned in the um, documentary for them, for the archives. And so I do talk with historians. Um, I'm lining up my next project where I've been able to trace my roots to Marie Laveau and Henrietta DeLille, who's being um, up for canonization for a saint. And um, so now I'm reaching out to the sisters um, of, of her order and talking with, um, you know, more of my Sarpie line, talking to more people that one of my um, kinfolk, Kenita Lene. Um, Joliet, she's doing a documentary about Marie Laveau, so she knows a lot about her. So I'll be seeing cool. them in New Orleans and um, using her as the historian and walking me through it and walking me through the locations. And so that's kind of how I work with other people. Maybe you could uh, get us together. We'd love to talk to her about her research. Um, Wonderful. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they have love... a house here in Natchitoches. I mean, in Coucherville, they they got a house here. And they're in, and they have a house in New Orleans, so you know they're you know, they're wonderful. Something. They're filmmakers, and they've done you know their film has been a part of my film festival. Her husband Charles Juliet has been my commentator on one of my film about two of my film festivals. So they're very involved with what I'm doing, and I just something. said, let's work together. Something there's I've a woman there's a, a woman who's been doing this kind of research a long time, uh, and I think her husband is he was doing it too. He was a historian. She is a genealogist. He, he's passed on. But her name Are you talking is, about Elizabeth Sean Mill? Yes, exactly. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, who is supposed to be a real <laughs> legend in geneal genealogical research. Yeah. Some, something I've noticed in a lot of Chopin stories is uh, you'll start a Natchitoches and suddenly you're in New Orleans. It was just a, a very common thing. To, even though the trip was pretty far and arduous, uh, you know, people did it all the time. They, they would have two houses, the country house and the, the city house, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they got on a P-Row boat, <laughs> little tiny wooden boats made it like, look, look like a log, and you just scooped out the middle. 
and just oh, yeah. roll on, you know. But, well, um, eventually they had um, steamboats. Steamboat, you know, yeah, the, the smaller steamboats. The beginning. <laughs> they had payroll the, first. <laughs> yeah, the packet ships were small. And, if that wasn't a maybe a, either a Native American sort of an innovation, the Piro. I think it's more Native American because, you know, they they were fishing all the time and just traveling that way. It's, you know, the waterways a lot over here are very small in some areas, so it was just easier to get around. And for a long time, that's just how they got around. Before they built all the roads up, they were on the river. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the roads weren't really till Huey Long, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a long time. But I do know, I do know Elizabeth Shaw Mills. She's always my Facebook friend. I've been, I've communicated with her from the beginning of me researching, um, you know, because I wanted, to, you know, I read her books and 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 her work. You know, I've 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 copied all of that too because I wanted to, I wanted to have a a free mind, but I wanted to look at what everybody else did at the same time. Yeah, and until a couple of years ago, we had Mary Lynn as the archivist. Uh, yeah, that was uh, my friend. Uh, I know, she was, she just knew everything that was in that yeah. archive, you know. And yeah, she, she, she's my rock star, I call her. She'd giggle every time. I'm like, you're my rock star. She'd giggle. <laughs> and her son, Zach, he, you know, she would always talk about her son, Zach. And when I had the second screening at the St. Augustine Catholic Church Hall, right after the film festival, because some people weren't able to see it, um, Zach was sitting, you know, David Williamson, he, he sat Zach right next to me. And I didn't know who he was at first, but I just kind of thought maybe it was her son. And after he's like, I'm like, you're Mary Lynn's son. And like, we just hugged each other. He was so happy to see his mom on the screen. And I was just so happy elated to meet him. Oh, yeah, you know, you can count on Mary Lynn being in the, in the room when you were at that Natchitoches, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, conference every fall. And even if she wasn't presenting, she would ask a really, like, pertinent question and just such a loss to the uh, research yeah. community well, when she had, passed. Big time. She had her own, her own interesting genealogical background. I remember Bruce when Bruce and I first met her, and I found out her last name being Barrett, and I said, wait a minute. I said, that sounds suspiciously French. And it turns out that she was from the French from the upper Mississippi Valley or maybe the Ohio River Valley. She was from Indiana maybe. Anyhow, her family were, you know, that she was the descendant of those French colonizers up in that area. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, I, just, and, I just found out the other day, literally this week, no, about I guess about a week or so ago really now, but anyway, that, that uh, my biological family, some of them from two different lines, are French too. But they're Norman French. They weren't the, they weren't Creole. They weren't Cajun. They were the French that came. If you heard, if you recall your high school or college history in the Norman Conquest, where they were those Norman French that went into England. In oh, okay. So this is over a thousand years ago, literally. Wow. And yeah, they and their Incredible. names were Beville. Uh, uh, Beville was probably the old pronunciation, and also uh, Chappelle, like Dave Chappelle, the, the mm-hmm. comic and actor. Mm-hmm. And that's what, and that's that's the two lines I've discovered so far. There may be more, but yeah, they were Norman French. Wow. So I am. I would I never have suspected that. I mean, I wouldn't have even suspected that. But it's <laughs> apparently way down the line. I'm French. I know, and I am like going into my Starpy line, which is Henrietta DeLeo on the Starpy. And they're um, Sicilian, you know. They're Italian people, so as they 
we spell it S-A-R-P-Y, but they spell it S-A-R-P-I. So mm-hmm. I'm tracing that all the way, you know, and, and finding those roots and bringing them into Louisiana. Like, how did all this migration come about, too? And oh, that's why it's important. Yeah, I'm yeah, a... and that's why I'm going to New Orleans at the end of the month so I can go to the markers, um, cemeteries, the Cabildo, of course, because I've I've tried to communicate, but they needed me to be in person. They wouldn't do my research over the phone, so that's a lot of the reason why I'm going there to trace, you know, the Jesuit plantation, uh, to trace trace after the Sarpy line with the um, with Henrietta Delille and Marie Laveau. So those are the two I'm going after and pulling them in with Marie Therese so that I can tell the story of the three women empowerment story that I've traced my roots to and just break them off a segment at a time. And um, I think that it's really important to show that there are other powerful women of color in their own right, that some of them get kind of a bad rap, especially Marie Laveau. And, um, you know, these are great humanitarian women, and um, I just want to shed a different light. But coming from the perspective not just as a genealogist or historian, but as a descendant. And I think that a lot of descendants are stepping up to tell our own stories of our own relatives. We're leaving it up to other people to tell our stories. And that's why I came from California not knowing anyone. I just felt maybe my ancestors calling me to come tell their story. And that's why I'm here. I left it all behind, you know, for them. And nobody could understand why I'm doing that. I couldn't really tell you. And I couldn't tell you how long it was going to take or anything. And, you know, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. I just packed up my little car and just, I just came out here. <laughs> right, right. I believe Stephen and I were some early people, like, encouraging you to stay here. Like, uh, this is a good place to come back to, you know. Um, and uh, I'm glad you uh, made such a go of it. Yeah, I, I think am, I'm too. Too. Through, was it through a mutual friend, like maybe Mona Lisa Garrett or somebody, or maybe Debbie Hollis, our grant writer? But it was somebody, a mutual friend. Debbie, I know Debbie is my friend and Mona yeah. Lisa. They're both, yeah. you know, my Facebook. But um, I remember Debbie came at the university, she, you know, when she's teaching everybody about getting grants and, and funding and stuff. Right. So we just yeah. hit it off right then and there. I mean, when we walked to the parking lot, it was raining. We're still talking. Her husband's rolling up. We're like, oh, I just love you, you know. And... Um, <laughs> She wasn't able to teach us, so she wasn't able to teach us. So we wound up hiring her, and she's been our grant writer for the last year. And really put, and not just a grant writer. I mean, you gotta like, you gotta become a, you gotta become a, oh, uh, uh, nonprofit uh, corporation, and right. you gotta mm-hmm. get. You gotta get bank accounts and gotta get in with the IRS and yep, uh, the all state of that. and the national government. I mean, it's food. just it's a lot of work. and I would have never done it. We just, never. Yeah, I've been, I, I don't my have the nonprofit. I've had since 2012. The Resurrection Firm Foundation is a 501c3 for historic yeah. preservation. So I went through the whole gamut, <clears> and my bank account is connected to the IRS. <clears throat> And they do check on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a big deal. But, you know, it does help you to be able to access more to the grants and funding. And, and I do produce the Cane River Film Festival through my nonprofit so that I'm able to access different sponsorships with corporations and things of that nature. So I write my own grants, and I just, you know, obviously I'm a talker. So that's what you have to be in order to, um, you know, go after, especially corporations, you know, to get at them and say, and and now I have like IATSE, 
um, the union in New Orleans. I have Louisiana Entertainment, Lieutenant Governor's Office, our Natchitoches Historic District Development Commission gives $1,500 to the grand prize winner each year. We have our own uh, Natchitoches, you know, our um, Bureau for Tourism and with Arlene Gould. So, I mean, we have Bank of Montgomery, City Bank, and so I've just been pushing and pushing. But this year I was able to bring um, B.K. Fulton King here, a major filmmaker from Virginia, and his wife. They just did a day to die with Bruce Willis, and they have the piano lesson on Broadway with Samuel L. Jackson. And they came here on their own, and they were my guest speaker at my film festival, showed his film called Freedom's Path. And he was doing amazing things. So I put him together with Louisiana Entertainment, and he said the next film they're bringing here. And I get to be the point person. So I'm excited about what I've been able to pull together through the Resurrection Firm Foundation and having that nonprofit. Yes, Stephen and I, from the beginning, have been big supporters of the Louisiana film industry. And, you know, there there are a lot of tax breaks that are kind of, like, how are we giving tax break to oil company? You can't chase them out with a stick, but very much the uh, film industry is sensitive to cost. And so if we can mm-hmm. make it a little um, cheaper for them to come here, they'll come here and then we get Louisiana up on the you know TV or on the big screen, which I think is good. Oh, I think it's wonderful. And, you know, my one of my top sponsors, Louisiana Entertainment, with um, Chris Stelly, he's a wonderful person. He was a guest speaker when I had it at the university one year, and he's just such a super nice guy. And, he's, you know, I can call him on the phone. I can tell him what's going on with me. And he's always like, good, keep up the great work. You know, he's calm. He's just hands-on, and he understands. And when I told him I was bringing these major filmmakers here, they sent their director on down to the festival, and I was as soon as he came in, I go, "Hey, guess what? BK Fulton has questions about taxes. Stephen, me, BK, put them together, and came back and was ready to deal. So you know, well, yeah, it, that's uh, what's happening. You know, it, it 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 builds. It's like the old cartoons where you would see a, a little, um, you know, a little snowball at the top of the mountain, and as it goes <clears> down, it gets bigger and bigger. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this little idea you had about a Louisiana uh, or Natchitoches Film Festival, it's just uh, having a lot of uh, green shoots come from it uh, to uh, spur on further projects. Absolutely. And I, sometimes I, you know, I just tell people, you know, with the, you have to have vision. Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm, I can. I, I, got, I had a drop call uh, because I was running out of power. Um, okay. I would I would point out, too, to the listeners that this is, a, I mean, it takes a lot of money to fund these kinds of projects, whether it's a film festival, whether it's what Bruce and I are doing, you know, setting mm-hmm. up a website, a literary and cultural website, and, and then setting up, at, you know, 10 years after the fact or 11 years after the fact as a not-for-profit. I mean, it takes some real you know, capital to try to get established. I mean, you can't just run this off a wing and a prayer, so to speak. No, not at all. And that's why I tell people they, that's one of the issues that I have because people are like, oh, Kelly's little thing over there. I said, hon, there's nothing little about what I do in any kind of way. And, you know, it takes thousands and thousands of dollars to do what I do. I know you just show up and you get a bag that's free and all the stuff in it. And you get to go to the movie theater for free and you might probably show up at my party for free. But now Louisiana Seafood is one of my sponsors. They donate food, and I put the restaurants to work. And I create a lot of yeah. opportunities from graphic designers to photographers to DJs. 
to people that do my printing, like um, right here locally, um, my friend Patrick, he has the platinum signs, and so he does my step and repeat. You know, you 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 know, you got to give the city their money for doing a special event. Like the money right. is just like you're kicking out money all over the place. And then you you know they're like, well, when do you get paid? I said I don't really know. <laughs> you know, I just try and take a little bit over here to keep the phone on and the computer on with the internet and stuff <laughs> like that. But you know, I just kind of keep moving forward regardless of what I. You know, that I'm not rich in any kind of way, but I think people think I am because I have so many wonderful sponsors. But sometimes I utilize sponsorship on trade. You know, they might have donated something for me, and then I put them on the flyer, you know, but the people, they just – and then now that I finished this documentary, I was able to secure during COVID a small business loan, which I have to pay back. That wasn't the give-you-it-money loan. Um, and so I was able to take that loan, put it on the reimbursable grant through Lieutenant Governor's office, and right. then I got some of those monies back. But I, I hired my director that won my 2020 film festival, David Wendell Boykins. I hired him, and that was $2,500. My editor, $2,000. Like, this is not cheap. And they pay no. the cost, you know, and that's just those two people, let alone, you know, now that I printed it in a DVD. You know, that cost to have it printed, designer with fiber, you know, that cost to have it right, cover right. design. And the slip covers, we have my proclamation I'm giving that Rick Nolan, the parish president at the time, gave me a proclamation for the work I did with the Mason de Marie Therese. So I copied those on nice paper and classic slip covers. Like, all of these things cost money. And so I have to right. repeat. So when I'm asking people for donations, I need them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Totally. Well, yeah, get it. Just, just simple stuff like our needing to get uh, text that we don't have on the website because they're still under copyright. You know, the writer's mm. still living, or there's an estate to deal with who's the copyright holder, or there's a publisher, you know, any of the three to deal with, whatever the case might be. And we can't just go and willy-nilly decide that, hey, we're going to take a, a text by Jane Doe or John Doe or whoever and stick in the website, no, because apart from the fact that you can get sued, it's unethical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we, we have to have permission, but that means legal permission, i.e. we have to get a license in order to include a text in the website. Again, if it's something under copyright. Now, if it's public domain, we can use it till the cows come home. Right. But, but getting a license means having to have money in order to fund, you know, you, know, you imagine putting multiple texts like that in the website where they all require a license. And we're the yeah, license, but, you know, the, whatever. the first film festival, I decided to, you know, do it after Steel Magnolias and, you know, show Moon yeah. Night, which was on the riverbank. Man, it cost $500 to show that movie. You had to get the, the rights to show it just that one right. night was $500. Wow. So right. it's like, so that's when I decided, we're, you know, I think the first year after that, I was going to do another Natchitoches movie. And I said, that's the end of that. I'm going to be at my own <laughs> filmmakers. <laughs> I don't have right. to pay for their films. You know, they'll just submit it. We're going to break in here and uh, finish chatting with Kelly uh, next week. Uh, you know, like, um, I, I really love her story, Stephen. Somebody that had a remote connection to Louisiana and she started following it up and following it up. Eventually wound up uh, moving here and... Um, you know, using her skills to start a film festival in Natchitoches. You know, when they do, when somebody does that, you say, well, why didn't they always have this? <laughs> you know, it's a great idea. She really, this is what I really like, too. She really 
understands and respects the history of her ancestors, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and wants to share that with a broader audience. So not just our listeners, but, you know, people all over. But, you know, this is a big deal now, this whole uh, attempt, people's attempts, you know, to try to reconstruct their family trees. And they're, you know, well, they're there's, a, there's a one series that kind of put it on the map for this guy. Uh, he's a professor. He talks to you and finds your family and then comes and tells you about what he found. And that's been going on for a while now. What's the name of that show? Is that Finding Your Roots? Maybe so, maybe so. He's a, he's a literary scholar, so Henry Louis Gates, and you know, he's yes, a, that's it, that's it. He's been doing this for a number of years now, and it's a, it's oh, a yeah. big, oh, it is. popular show on PBS, I understand. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's one that more than one person, because I'm doing my own, you know, research into my genealogical, my biological lineage. People have been saying, well, oh, you need to be following his show, you know. You know, the great thing about being the star of the show is you have a staff, you know. <laughs> he just tells the Sikkim guys and the, you know, uh, we, we are the staff pretty much, you and me, so we have we to do the <laughs> we tracking down stuff ourselves. Well, for the Lucian. Well, I was just going to say the same vein. I mean, you look at what we're doing and, you know, we are having not only to track everything down and do what you were going to do a little while later, which is edit, but also to try to give some commentary. And he can go and basically send me send the test to general, so to speak, he can send the troops out to go and fight, you know. Hmm. Yeah, Winston Churchill used to employ um, um, researchers to go and dig out the, you know, the facts, but they would have them on a list, and he would, like, weave it all together in a story, and it's a totally different thing uh, than what they had, you know, he's kind of putting, making the connections. Um, well, I hope you guys have a wonderful Mardi Gras next week. And uh, for this week in uh, uh, the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Bruce McGee. Uh, Steve Payne, we certainly would want to thank Kelly for joining us this week and for sharing her family story. Uh, we do wish her well on this documentary, but we also ask those of you that are in the state but also outside the state, if you're interested in film, uh, Kelly has been doing this, this uh, film festival for a few years now. She is the host of the thing. She has herself worked in the film industry, so she has a kind of an insider's knowledge of, of film. So, you know, do, do go uh, to, to Natchitoches. Uh, and, and I think they're probably back in person now. You know, they were, yeah. they were, they were virtual for a couple of years. There. And she does, before we get off here, I have to point out, she does highlight the work of young Louisiana filmmakers. So a lot of what you're going to see in Natchitoches at that festival are, are young Louisianas who are, you know, doing various kinds of films. It might be fiction, it might be documentary, whatever. So she is trying to highlight their work and kind of give them a leg a leg up in the in the you know, the, the cinematic community. Uh, so again, you know, do do support these Louisiana filmmakers and their work. So again, thanks uh, Kelly for joining us this week. We also want to thank all of you for listening and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.